Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 16 The Amazon and the Atlantean I have so many questions Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind Then I'll ask the obvious question Start asking questions You're the answer son Welcome to Man of Steel, Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your DC Cinematic Universe apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DCCU. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by those eagerly anticipating the DC Cinematic Universe. In this episode, we're covering Aquaman and Wonder Woman, costumes and casting, Kryptonians, and magic. This podcast dives deep into Man of Steel to answer the critics and the confused. This show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate a film that will lead us into the DC Cinematic Universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who loved Man of Steel and who love to chew their food. Well, hey folks, this is a Man of Steel DCCU podcast. But it's an awesome time to be alive if you're a superhero fan. Doubtless by now you've heard the Spider-Man deal between Sony Pictures and Marvel Studios. Daredevil on Netflix is around the corner, and we've had epic episodes of The Flash and other DC TV. But that's all other podcasts. We're going to continue with our scene-by-scene commentary of Man of Steel, but break them up occasionally with broader DCCU or Superman topics like today's show. There's a lot of Little Suicide Squad stories bubbling about that I want to tackle, but I just can't contain my excitement about Zack Snyder tweeting out our first look at Aquaman. I know you've already seen it, but for posterity, on February 20th, 1am in the morning, EST, Zack delivered the image with the line, There is only one true king. Hashtag, unite the seven. This is by no means an exhaustive examination, but I was already planning a Wonder Woman episode, and this came down the line and there were just too many parallels between the two to ignore, so I'm Frankensteining my reactions and recollections of Aquaman with some of what I had prepared for Wonder Woman, and we'll see how far we get. Quickly, I just want to make some meta-commentary about new media marketing. Now, I barely understand Twitter as is, but even I get that this is the way of the world right now. There's no press release, no trade report, no formal announcement, no clear attachment to any other piece of traditional media or event. Instead, the direct just drops a piece of content directly to the people at 1 a.m. in the morning on social media. I mention this only to temper expectations that a teaser or a trailer or that next piece of media must be tied to any particular film release. Certainly, that was tradition, but it's no longer the rule. I was prepping for a court hearing the next morning, and around 2 a.m. I started getting messages from my friends to check online, and there it was. I had to concentrate on what I was doing, so I was a little bit torn, but I was probably distracted for a good 20 minutes before getting back to work. So who knows when that next bit of promotion is going to strike without fanfare. So before we get into the image, first let's get into that text. There is only one true king. Maybe Zach is speaking purely spontaneously, as some do with Twitter, but I can't help but to be inclined to believe that phrase is laden with meaning. First, that this Aquaman is a king. To be a king, you must have a kingdom. And so we can have a degree of confidence that Atlantis is a part of the DCCU. Even if you never doubted that, let's not take it for granted. 
by his very appearance, we know that the DCCU is open to interpretation and adaptation and not necessarily beholden to tradition. For example, one of the ways that you could write around those hidden worlds or supernatural beings preceding Superman was to have Aquaman be created by the impact of the world engine in the Indian Ocean. Similarly, one of the ways to explain the Amazons is if they were Kryptonian in origin. However, that Aquaman is a king over a kingdom would suggest a more traditional approach to the character. Now second, that Aquaman is a king makes him royalty. Again, let's not take things for granted. There are versions of Aquaman where he is an undersea vigilante superhero, but lays no claim to the throne of Atlantis. And here we get his royal highness. Third, only one true king suggests that there are contenders and pretenders to the crown. That is, there are those who would be king or others who are false, as opposed to true, kings. If diegetically within the story, then the fight for the throne may be a central aspect of the story. Of course, that raises the issue of whether Snyder is even talking diegetically. For all we know, he may be saying or speaking creatively with respect to some crown or kingship outside the film universe. Like saying Jason Momoa is the one and only person who could embody, rule, and reign over this portrayal of Aquaman. So he is the one true king of being Aquaman. Alternatively, he is the one true king within the Justice League. Now, if Aquaman is royalty, he shares that in common with the tradition of Wonder Woman, princess to the queen of the Amazons, and it puts them in good company with the nobility of Superman and Batman. Superman is ostensibly a Kryptonian nobleman, and billionaire Batman is an American aristocrat. The Emerald Knight and the Mercurial Messenger fill out this pantheon, but we can see perhaps a risk of distance or stratification in the League if it isn't reminded to be humble. And that's again where Superman's character can shine. As arguably one of the League's most powerful members, he carries himself like royalty with the heart of a peasant, as Wonder Woman once quipped. Aquaman has often had ties to Authorian legend, as in King Arthur's Court, the Round Table, etc. Perhaps the definitive single retelling of King Arthur's tale is T.H. White's The Once and Future King, published in 1958. Kurt Busiek wrote an Aquaman reboot in 2006, collected as the Sword of Atlantis, Once and Future. And during a 2003 reboot, Aquaman's hook hand was replaced by a magical water hand by the Lady of the Lake. And the only one true king may be a way of invoking the once and future king phraseology, in the sense that the king who was and is to be is the one and only true king, with all others paling in comparison. Obviously, we don't know, but it's food for thought for six little words. And from six words to three, with a focus on seven, the hashtag and the tagline prominently posted over the image, Unite the Seven. The ambiguity is delightfully maddening and exactly what a teaser image like this should be. The Seven. The Seven what? The Seas? The Justice League? Or the Magnificent Seven? Seven Artifacts? Seven what? What does Unite mean? And who is doing it? Is Aquaman doing the uniting? Or is he being united? Is this in story or out? It's powerfully suggestive, but just vague enough to let your imagination run a little wild, which is why it's such an effective teaser. I think the prevailing theory now is that the Seven are the Justice League, and that the Unite refers to what the story will do to bring them together, rather than Aquaman being the one to unite the Seven.
Most longtime fans probably know that the original lineup and the first villain that the JLA faced off against on that infamous cover was Green Lantern, Aquaman, Martian Manhunter, The Flash, and Wonder Woman facing off against Starro, the giant alien starfish. Conspicuously absent from that cover were the world's finest, Superman and Batman, but nonetheless, they're on the team and within the story itself. A little less commonly recalled is that the first appearance of the JLA was not Justice League number one, but the Brave and the Bold issue number 28. This lineup was also the primary composition of the JLA during Grant Morrison's epic 41-issue run beginning in 1997. For the DC Cinematic Universe, the composition appears to be the same, save for Cyborg taking the place of Martian Manhunter. But back to the tweet, let's not completely dismiss the idea of the seven seas. Now, what's fascinating about that phrase is that it is profoundly ancient and yet persistent. Wikipedia dates the earliest reference as far back as 2300 BC in a Sumerian hymn from Mesopotamia. As the ancient phrase moved through the ages, it would always mean different bodies of water. But the idea that something so ancient, literally still being used to this day while completely taken for granted is ripe and fertile ground for hidden or secret knowledge buried within the phrase. A reference to something so long and forgotten is completely fitting of a lost kingdom like Atlantis. Imagine that we've all been speaking about Atlantis for the past 4,000 years without even realizing it. Well, perhaps the seven refer to artifacts of power. Prominently displayed in the picture is Aquaman's magic weapon, the so-called Trident of Neptune, despite its five prongs. It doesn't take much to imagine that within the rich world world of DC, six other artifacts of comparable power, like the Helm of Naboo, or the Claw of Horus, the Scarab, the Lasso of Truth, and so on. But let's get to the look. The first thing I was struck with was the intensity of the straight-on stare, which is why I think a lot of people immediately thought that Cal Drogo was staring right back at them. This is someone to take seriously in that moment. But personally, I actually got a bit more of a Ronin Dex vibe from his Stargate Atlantis role, perhaps because of the big hair, and in Stargate Atlantis, he sported those massive dreads. The next thing that immediately stood out to me were the tats, the Polynesian-inspired tattoos that play to Momoa's casting, but also adds a rich layer of real-world culture to the DCCU's Atlanteans. I can't pretend that I'm well-versed in Polynesian culture, but my limited exposure to it has always captured my imagination. With the exhaustive behind-the-scenes extras that accompanied the Lord of the Rings trilogy, we got a look into the Maori tribe and culture, the indigenous people of New Zealand. In 2002, Whale Rider gave us another look, and through bits and pieces of it here and there, the culture, the folklore, and their myths seemed just as rich while being fresh and distinct from more familiar mythological traditions like ancient Greek, Germanic, Arthurian, Celtic, Norse, Chinese, or Arabian. Speaking of which, I've got to recommend a short speculative fiction story dramatically read by Grant Stone in episode 18 of Starship Sofa, a long-running sci-fi short fiction podcast. The story is called Shark God vs. Octopus God by Jeff Vandermeer, and it just has that flavor of Polynesian mythology. I'm going to play a short excerpt. Daku Waka could take many shapes, but he enjoyed the shape of shark the best in those early days. It fit him. It fit his aspirations. When Daku Waka swallowed up a fish, he would give a big, bloody, toothy smile and say, One more. I'm still hungry. 
I'm the f***ing shark god. Give me more. No matter how full Dakuwaka was, he still wanted at least one more fish. This made Dakuwaka dangerous. It also made him foolish. Sometimes, when Dakuwaka was bored, he would take human form. In human form, he was a handsome, tall, dark-eyed youth with gleaming white teeth. Hopefully that gave you a taste. The story is maybe about 30 minutes long. It's episode 18 of Starship Sofa. I'll put a link up in the show notes for you to check out. Well, the reason that I'm so excited about Atlantis potentially being tied to Polynesian culture is that it grounds a fantastic thing in the DCCU to something in our reality. And that was used to pretty great effect in Disney's Atlantis, The Lost Empire in 2001, barring heavily from Mayan and Tibetan influences. Using Polynesian influences may present us with something technically alien, but yet feeling properly like an undiscovered part of this world. Something that's harder to achieve if you design without grounding your influences to something in this world. That automatically ups the richness and the authenticity of anything that you design than if you had to go through the effort of imagining everything from scratch like they painstakingly achieved with Man of Steel's Krypton. Alternatively, perhaps Atlantis is a global melting pot with influences and citizens hailing from all corners of the planet and only Aquaman is strongly influenced by Polynesian culture. And that has potential too, but nonetheless Polynesian culture will be important to the character character and his film. The tattoos are filled with symbolism and meaning, which you can look up and read for yourself in printed interviews. I think I'm going to hold off until we can get an audio clip of an interview so that you can hear him explain them himself. So after I took in what was so unique and cultural about his look, I started to appreciate how much of it was like the comics. Now granted, Aquaman has a long history and in his 74 years, his most common appearance was short blonde hair, clean shaven, and an orange shirt with green pants and gloves, with that stylized A emblem for a belt buckle. However, after Crisis of Infinite Earths in 1985 and a failed reboot, Peter David began an epic Aquaman run in the 90s who sported the look that clearly inspired Momoa's costume, and which is featured in Bruce Timm's Justice League animated series. That Aquaman sported long hair, a beard, asymmetrical armor, and a hook hand. That was also the Aquaman featured in Morrison's epic JLA run, and so that was the Aquaman that I was the most familiar with. And as I grew to enjoy his chemistry playing off the other team members, that appreciation would lead me to eventually enjoy his entire modern series up until the Kurt Busiek reboot. Nothing against it per se, it just seemed like a good jumping off point. Eventually, I'd go back and enjoy some of the pre-crisis Aquaman via the Detroit League, where Aquaman was the chairman, but that's another story. So this design organically matched matches the character, and it fits right alongside the trinity that we've already seen. They've designed a costume appropriate for the actor and for the world, rather than trying to shoehorn Momoa into that bright orange and green. I know we're talking about the costume, but let me just make a quick tangent on casting, which I'm sure we'll revisit later in the DCCU. But I am a fan of Jason Momoa, going well back to the guilty pleasure that is Baywatch Hawaii. 
There's no question that he can play a ruthless warrior, but if you've seen him in any other performance or off screen, you know that he's always ready to beam that charming toothy smile. And in his Atlantis role, despite being a tough guy, he was frequently allowed to drop humorous one-liners and biting sarcasm, which is to say there is room and range for quips and humor with this actor and with a serious warrior take on Aquaman. And for those more inclined to the Batman brave in the bold, outrageous Aquaman, I wouldn't say that this image precludes that entirely. The recent DC direct-to-video animated feature Justice League The Throne of Atlantis was an Aquaman-centric story adapting the New 52 reboot, yet even its serious, straight-faced version pays homage to that beloved, outrageous take on Aquaman. It'll be interesting to see if that pauldron, or shoulder armor, and the arm armor are functional or purely cultural and decorative. In other words, is this Aquaman so durable that the armor doesn't really add to his defenses? There's absolutely nothing wrong with cultural dress or costume, and I think that was one of the best rationalizations for Superman's costume as introduced in Birthright. The prominence of the crest, the color schemes, and the general design of their clothing drove and inspired Superman's costume in Birthright. To me, that's a perfect rationale for wearing something that otherwise doesn't jive with social norms. I don't question a yarmulke or hijab or headscarf, rosary or turban, because I know that they pertain to their cultures. Just like I don't necessarily question neckties or heels because fashion is cultural. I think Man of Steel did a good job in showing an overall design as culturally consistent, but perhaps it didn't explain the colors as well as Birthright did. However, with Aquaman and Wonder Woman, we have an opportunity to really reinforce that rationale, that they're not oddballs wearing abnormal costumes, but merely strangers in a strange land, wearing what is normal to them. I'm not necessarily saying that I want the narrative to be a fish-out-of-water, no pun intended, story, but even if they're fully savvy of American fashion norms, wearing your culture's clothing can be a statement, as it was in Man of Steel, who despite being raised human, wanted to proudly proclaim his heritage in his public debut. He was beaming and busting with pride about his people. It's not an S on my world, right? Aquaman and Wonder Woman should be no less proud of their people and their cultures. But what do I know about fashion? Let's hear from somebody who does, the costume designer Michael Wilkinson. His credits include Sky High, 300, Watchmen, Tron Legacy, Sucker Punch, and in 2013, he was nominated for an Academy Award for his work on American Hustle. These next two clips are red carpet interviews from the Raps 2014 Oscar party. You know, I can't say much about it, but we're all very excited about creating. I heard the Batman outfit is really awesome. Did you have a hand in that? I designed the new Batsuit. I'm designing the new Wonder Woman costume. I'm tweaking the Superman suit. So yeah, I'm glad you've heard good, good buzz about it. Kevin Smith was raving about it. Right, that's a great friend to have, right? Yeah. Yes. Right, well, let me ask you this then. What is, I know you probably can't give away too many details, but what is your thought process going into Wonder Woman? Because it hasn't been done in so long. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a thrilling and slightly scary a prospect, of course. It's such it's so important to get her right. She really deserves to be presented on screen in her full glory. So, you know, what I think, what I do is I look at the, the history of how the character is being presented on the, the big screen and the small screen and on comic books and graphic novels. We, we process it all and then we kind of put that aside and work out what is right for our film, for 
the cinematic uh, universe that our director Zack Snyder is putting together and uh, we try and create a Wonder Woman that's relevant for today's audiences. And, and do you think it's realistic that she'd be running around fighting crime in what we've typically seen her in? Absolutely. I mean you just have to look at the gladiators from ancient Rome. They they did their thing in little loincloths and a, and a shield and uh, it works for Thor. It worked for 300 so let's see what happens. Uh, I'm designing the new Superman and Batman film. Yes I am. Are you excited about that? Super excited. Um, yes I'm designing the new Batsuit and so that's coming along very well. We're having camera tests at the moment um, and I'm also having an opportunity to design the new Wonder Woman costume. So That's a big deal. It's a big deal. Pressure? It's a, little, it's a whole lot of pressure. I'm going to hope to really um, to, to do everyone proud. Uh, you know, dealing with these iconic uh, figures, um, you really want to do justice to the legacy. We've done a lot of research into how these characters have been portrayed over the ages. And we're working hard to come up with uh, costumes that really reverberate with modern audiences. And what kind of materials are you using for that? Because I know that they're going to have to be moving around a lot on set. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's fascinating working on these superhero costumes because you really get to explore the forefront of costume technologies. We're doing, we're using a lot of digital technologies. We're we're using scanners and 3D printers and uh, and all sorts of fantastic new exciting materials. So it's really a thrilling uh, a thrilling job. There was another unused clip that had challenging audio where Wilkinson talks about iterating costumes with each appearance. And that led me to reflect on the Aquaman reveal. Is this the furthest out that we've seen an actor in costume from the opening of their announced solo film? If nothing moves, Aquaman is slated for a release in summer of 2018 or over five years from now. If there are any other contenders that beat that, definitely let me know in the comments or by email. What's interesting about that, besides being insanely far out, is that you can bet there will be tweaks and iterations on the costume each appearance. Obviously to fully monetize the merchandising, but also to keep the filmmakers creatively inspired. Moreover, those tweaks can react to public perception. If the people love it, they can embrace it. If they're not fans, then they can move slowly away. Five years is a lot of time to get Aquaman just right for his solo film. It's a luxury that all the Justice League members, except Wonder Woman, will have, allowing adjustments and tweaks from Batman v Superman to Justice League to their solo films. Wonder Woman won't have that time because she begins shooting this fall, which is consistent with the timetable set by Suicide Squad, starting shooting this spring, April to be exact. Speaking about Wonder Woman, let's talk a little bit about her. So I don't intend to exhaustively cover everything about the costume. I thought I'd just stick to apologetics on two things, the heels and the skirt, namely whether the heels are plausible and why isn't Wonder Woman wearing pants? <laughs> Before I tried to justify their plausibility, let's just start with tradition. The fact is in her first appearance inside the pages of All-Star Comics number eight, in 1941, that very same image being the basis of her first cover appearance in Sensation Comics number 1 in 1942, Wonder Woman was in heels. Wonder Woman was in heels on the cover of Miss Magazine number 1 in 1971. Linda Carter wore heels from 1975 to 1979 before millions of viewers in nearly 60 episodes each an hour long, and the same for the unaired but widely viewed NBC 2011 pilot starring Adrienne Licky. 
across 13 years, 9 seasons, and 109 episodes of Super Friends, Wonder Woman had heels. She also had heels in Bruce Timm's Justice League, which spanned 5 seasons and 91 episodes from 2001 to 2006. I will note that in the 2009 direct-to-video Wonder Woman animated feature, she does not wear heels, and there are some asterisks to everything that I said above, but we'll get to that soon. All I'm getting at is that so far as tradition is concerned, it is reasonably considered a traditional part of her costume. Perhaps it's not practical or a good idea, but it is tradition, consistent with Superman's cape or Batman's cowl with the exposed jaw. Maybe that's enough reason to keep and maintain the tradition, maybe not, just food for thought. I'm not going to try to pretend that heels, or more accurately wedges in Godot's case, are practical, but my attempt at apologetics is going to try to justify them as culturally plausible. The fact is that fashion and culture isn't purely practical or utilitarian. That certainly holds true in modern culture for heels and neckties. Now, there are many tellings and histories explaining their origins and endurance, but the following is the most concise explanation that I could find that covered both by Kevin Lieber, host of the YouTube channel Vsauce2. High-heeled shoes were invented by Persian horse riders to help hold their feet in stirrups, which allowed them to stand up to shoot their bows and arrows. Nobility in Western Europe adopted the style as a symbol of machismo, and the higher the heels you wore, the wealthier you appeared, because they were so impractical for walking on cobbled streets. Women began to adopt masculine fashion, including the high heel. But by the 1740s, men's fashion became more practical and less ostentatious, and high heels were considered foolish. It wasn't until the mid-19th century that high heels on women symbolized female sexuality. While neckties date back to at least 210 BC China, there's no evidence to suggest that neckties were commonly worn by men at that time. The modern necktie evolved from the cravat, worn by 17th century Croatian soldiers with theories on their use being to hide a dirty shirt, to provide psychological protection of the neck during battle, to hold together their jackets, or to distinguish themselves from other soldiers. During the Thirty Years' War in the early 1600s, Croatian mercenaries were hired by France's King Louis VIII, and Parisians loved their colorful knotted neckerchiefs, with the word cravat coming from a corrupt French pronunciation of Croat. By the early 19th century, the way a man knotted his neckwear became such an important indication of his style that the cravat became known more simply as a tie. And it served to separate class, as you can't wear one while operating machinery and it gets in the way of manual labor. You can check out the full video and explanation, including the origins of the codpiece, in the show notes. So from the clip, it's clear that fashion can and does descend from utility, and notably that heels began as a tool for riders. On the cover of Wonder Woman number 1, she's charging into battle atop a white steed, and I imagine you can already guess where I'm going with this. If the Amazons are or were a cavalry culture of horseback warriors like the Mongolians or Persians, they might have adopted a similar innovation, and it would be reasonable to have 
stylistic flourishes that acknowledge that. Even if Wonder Woman's wedges cannot serve to secure a stirrup, it's not irrational that they might be a part of the Amazonian motif centuries later, just as we continue to wear heels and neckties to this very day. Another source of apologetics is whether this is Wonder Woman's one and only costume. I'm sure you know that our military provides its servicemen with an array of uniforms for different purposes, a dress uniform for formal occasions, and a service uniform for day-to-day non-combat duties. And a utility uniform or BDU, battle dress uniform, or fatigues for actual combat. You may remember in Man of Steel, Jor-El went through several different costumes in a short span, each of which could have fulfilled different roles. The costumes that we are seeing now may be just one of several variants. On the other hand, it is a cultural value judgment that having a particular costume for a particular occasion is the way to go. Perhaps, in Amazonian culture, one's primary clothing is meant for all occasions. Then the costume would reasonably be used in peacetime more than in combat and accordingly have more fashion flourishes than a purely utilitarian uniform. And even if these uniforms were meant for battle, fashion and style were the rule rather than the exception across human history. I don't need to take you very far back at all. For over a hundred years, the soldiers of the British Army bore the nickname Redcoats, unsurprisingly because they wore bright red coats. Now, there are some pragmatic and utilitarian justifications for the color red, but there are far fewer explanations for the specific cut, the dramatic hats, and other fashionable flourishes. While I'm not going to assume that the Atlanteans or the Amazonians are backwards people, I think it's fair to say that they probably don't share the same contemporary sensibilities across the board that our more global mundane community might, and so their fashion may plausibly express itself on the battlefield as it has throughout human history, except for the last century of combat. One of my favorite childhood memories is the arms and armor exhibit in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, or the Met. The exhibit has been on display since 1912, and I kind of take it for granted that it will always be there as the coolest part of the museum for those who haven't yet yet developed an appreciation for art. I defy anyone to look at the items on exhibit and say that those arms and armor are purely utilitarian. Even something as innocuous as engraving can serve to give an enemy blade more purchase to bite into and penetrate your protection. Nonetheless, style and artistry has prevailed over pragmatism for actual historical armor worn in battle. Of course, at the end of the day, there is a distinct separation between the stylized world of superhero comic books and reality. Even if the practicality of heels is questionable, so too are masked vigilantes and superpowered aliens, and it is up to the filmmakers to help us believe that they are plausible. And to that end, I'm certain that they can. Anne Hathaway's Catwoman pulled them off in Nolan's realistic universe and Snyder has already pulled them off on film before. What if I told you that Baby Doll from Sucker Punch and Silk Spectre from Watchmen did all their fight scenes in heels? Would you doubt me? (laughs) Well, if you didn't, you should have. Um, Truth be told, it is mixed. I had to double check to be sure, but basically the scenes with heels are intercut with scenes in far more reasonable footwear when the choreography picks up. Carter or Palicki might do some action in heels, but switch to boots for running. And I guess that's arguably a gaffe, but it's an inoffensive one unless you were specifically looking for it. Until researching for this segment, I had never given it a second thought. A film is meant to be watched in real time, not frame by frame, and by the time you're subjecting it to that level of scrutiny, you're unnecessarily 
unnecessarily subjecting yourself to seeing stunt doubles, continuity gaffes, and other inconsequential matters, so long as the illusion is intact for most, when viewed normally, I don't think it matters. If I were to check on others, I suspect the same holds true for all live-action heroes pretending to fight in heels, whether Garner's Elektra, Barry and Pfeiffer's Catwoman, Alba's Invisible Woman, and so on and so forth. I haven't really checked, but I'm fairly confident in that guess. One last thought, if Wonder Woman can fly, are her impractical wedges less egregious? Well, maybe a little. I don't really think so, but it's something to think about. So, even less seriously than the heels, let's talk the skirt. It's both a break from and an acknowledgement of tradition. For most of Wonder Woman's history, she's worn essentially briefs. However, in her first appearance and many times thereafter, she has worn skirts and more recently skirts inspired by that stylized Greco-Roman skirt composed of leather straps called the Tarigas spelled P-T-E-R-Y-G-E-S or P-T-E-R-U-G-S, which is loosely translated from Greek as feathers. The design provides a modicum of protection, a margin of modesty, and maximum freedom of movement while causing the mind to remember ancient mythology. It looks like Wonder Woman, it pays tribute to tradition, and it grounds the design in real-world historical influences, making her a part of this world. Of course, not everyone is as much a fan of it as I, either because they hoped for the briefs or because they believe that Wonder Woman should wear pants. I certainly believe that there is value in tradition, but I also think that there is an art in adaptation, and I think they went the right way with the skirt. The briefs are tough to translate in a live-action, straight-faced take if Superman hasn't already established that the bold briefs are a superhero norm in this world. As for pants, I'm all for Wonder Woman wearing whatever she wants, but this is hardly the first time, nor will it be the last time, that her costume has been confronted with criticism or calls for change. Shortly before the launch of the New 52 DCU reboot of the comics, in 2010, Wonder Woman underwent a costume change that included a leather jacket and dark pants. Additionally, fans were treated to differing concept art of her New 52 costume, with and without pants, sparking this debate anew in 2011. I thought it might be fun to listen to a few celebrity attendees of New York Comic Con 2009 share their views on whether Wonder Woman should wear pants by way of Alan Kistler and the Crazy Sexy Geeks show. Beth Horn, Venom, American Gladiators. Do you think Wonder Woman should wear pants? I absolutely love Wonder Woman. And you know what? I don't think she should wear pants because she's got some sexy legs. And if you got it, you should be showing it. <laughs> Jennifer Widerstrom, Phoenix. American Gladiators. Should Wonder Woman wear pants? I think Wonder Woman is a lady that is perfect just the way she is. She was my first costume ever as a child. She's still a hero today. And part of the reason is because she's all girl, all chick. She rocks the skirt. And the knee boots are hot. They're still rocking, so I say leave it. Jean Ha, artist. Top 10. As long as female superhero fans can look at it and say, damn, that's kick-ass. <laughs> Elena Lemmer, digital artist. Sherry Moon Zombie, actor, fashion designer. Absolutely not. No? No, stick with what she's got. It's great. It's working. <laughs> Tim Gunn, fashion authority. Now, we've been asking this question to a few artists and writers and folks. 
Uh, do you think Wonder Woman, should she wear pants or is she just good as is? Because some people brought up a practicality issue. Given how the superheroes navigate the world, they need to have as little interference with them as possible. So the more form-fitting the items are, the better. But if you look at a pair of skinny jeans, it's pretty form-fitting. True, true. So she could work a pants. Miracle Lori, actor, Dollhouse. Do you think Wonder Woman should wear pants? No, why? I think it's about Wonder Woman's comfort level, and as long as she has skivvies on underneath, I don't see what the problem is. If she wants to drop kick a guy with a skirt on, I did it in a t-shirt, for God's sake. Remember? I do. Emma Caulfield, actor, Buffy. As, as someone who's played the powerful, combative woman mm -hmm. who can take on demons and whatnot, mm -hmm. one thing we talked about is superhero women and their costumes. Right. Do you think Wonder Woman should wear pants? No. No. Absolutely not. Not at all. No. I don't see the point in hiding or downplaying or negating a woman's sexuality right. in order to prove that she's somehow capable right. or strong or smart. I, I, that's just, of course you can be both. I think you can be both. I don't understand why there's this, well, you have to be one or the other. You, you have to act more like a man in order to be X. Right. I don't want to be a man. I like being a woman, and I'll kick your ass. You seem. <laughs> you know what I mean? Absolutely. And I'll look damn good while I do it. Obviously not an objective poll when conducted by a self-proclaimed comic book historian directing the question at fans of the genre at a comic book convention. Nonetheless, I thought it was a fun series of interviews, and you can check out the full thing with video in the show notes. Well, that was a lot of apologetics for the costume, and I think outside of a realistic take, it's certainly less of an issue. You just help your audience to become genre savvy, and they accept it as part of the tropes of the genre. Sort of like how large pyrotechnic explosions are expected in action films, fight choreography in martial arts films, or spontaneous singing in musicals, and so on. For that reason, I've defended Superman's brief in the comics because it serves as a litmus test or a shibboleth for someone who gets it or they don't. It, it acts as a lightning rod for criticism, allowing you to generally tell where the critic is coming from. However, that's not the approach that they took with Man of Steel, and so far, it looks like they're being remarkably consistent with believable and grounded costumes that still summon their comic book counterparts to mind and are readily identified as such. And so, on from costumes to the casting of Gal Gadot. And let's just pause to hopefully pronounce this correctly. It's Gal Gadot rhymes with tote, not Gal Gadot rhymes with spot, nor Gal Gadot rhymes with Merlot, tarot, or escargot. She's Israeli and not French, so the T is not silent. But lest there be any doubt, here she is saying her own name and it being said by a Tel Aviv reporter. So who is Gal Gadot? She first drew attention to herself when at 19 she won the Miss Israel pageant in 2004 and went on to represent Israel in the Miss Universe competition that year. Gal Gadot, 19 Miss Israel. Hello, my name is Gal Gadot. I'm obviously Israeli. Since then, she has starred alongside such big Hollywood heavyweights like Tom Cruise, Cameron Diaz, Vin Diesel, and Tina Fey. Gal, Gal Gadot, 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 Gal Gadot, Gal Gadot, Gal Gadot. 
So inherent in our difficulty in pinning down the pronunciation of her name is that she is culturally foreign to the U.S. and has an accent which may lend to the credibility of her role as an ambassador from a hidden island of Amazons. I love Linda Carter, but there was very little about her performance that suggested she was anything but American, which perhaps served her role as Navy Yeoman Petty Officer First Class Prince just fine. But I'm excited to see a more global Justice League. I know that there is a lot to talk about, so <laughs> just to keep it focused and to give us ground to revisit, I'm just going to tackle one more concern, her lack of acting experience. It is a reasonable concern for such an iconic character that means so much to so many people on which such lofty expectations are placed. But as Henry Cavill has repeatedly said in so many interviews, you can't play an icon. Cavill's approach has always been to play the character that he was given, to internalize and humanize and project what was on the page and what he was directed to do. When people fell in love with Carter as Wonder Woman, it was less because of the importance, stature, and significance of Wonder Woman as an icon, but because Carter brought her take on the character to life. Carter didn't try to embody some perfect, idealized conception of all of Wonder Woman's possible virtues, but focused instead on playing a character. And on the spectrum of icon to character, actors and filmmakers justifiably err on the side of character, because characters can be in and can tell stories, whereas icons have stories told about them, typically in the form of nonfiction documentaries rather than tales of fantastic adventure. And so it will be with Gadot. And if the writer is worthy and the director deft and discerning, her part will be written to suit her talents and directed as such. Films like The Matrix and Punch Drunk Love show that a film can exceed the expectation of the lead actor's talents. But I'm not worried. I'm sure she'll do great. And remember that Batman v Superman has wrapped as of December. So Warner Brothers has a good idea of what they have on their hands. And I'm sure Michelle McLaren has seen the relevant dailies. And I imagine the buzz is positive because Godot has been picking up more roles and is rumored as being eyed for keeping up with the Joneses. These studios and casting directors are seeing something that gives them confidence, which makes me excited to see her in a more substantial English language language role. It is admittedly a straw man, but let's compare Godot's acting experience to Carter's experience when first landing the role of Wonder Woman. By her own admission prior to Wonder Woman, Carter had only done one TV movie and a couple of bit parts on TV. Nonetheless, she was able to capture America's hearts, minds, and imaginations. Godot landed a reoccurring part in a major film franchise, appearing thrice, and had two reoccurring television roles as well as many bit parts in feature films. But let's let Carter speak about it herself. I had uh, gone out for the first time they did Wonder Woman, and I didn't even get a call back. And then um, they decided to redo it, and I, I was just a struggling actress. I'd had a couple of parts. I was a member of the Screen Actors Guild, but that's it. I'd done a couple of one-day things here and there. And uh, I was studying and, and, and uh, working hard to um, make it in Hollywood. And I had done a couple of screen tests. And uh, there's a thing called cold readings. And I, I really have never gotten a job off a of cold reading in my life. Uh, and I didn't have to cold read because they saw the film. So they met me and they said, oh, we've seen some film on you. Oh, thank God. So we just would like for you to test. And so 
oh my God, it was thrilling. I, I didn't have any experience, so the network didn't want to take a chance. But the producer said, this is the only person that can play this, and either we won't do it or... So he really went on the out on the limb for me, and the rest is history. I had $25 in my bank account when I got Wonder Woman. Again, it's a different time, different expectations, so it's not a serious argument to say that casting a modern, big-budget action film should follow the criteria of a television show from the 70s. However, whatever space Carter occupies in the public consciousness and in our hearts wasn't hampered by her lack of experience. Despite being a different time and medium, these actors share something in common besides the Golden Lasso and Tiara. They were both willing to do their own stunts. The following is from a PBS Pioneers of Television episode on superheroes. Acting was also a challenge because Linda Carter was so inexperienced when she landed the role. There are a couple of real stinkers in Wonder Woman where I had some, they'd get, gotten me some acting coach who thought I should really be playing up Wonder Woman. So I did that and it was, uh, uh, they're really awful. Because female action stars were so rare in the 1970s, when Linda Carter needed a stunt double, the producers dressed up a man in her costume. We couldn't have a hairy guy doubling me. You know, there was just not. <laughs> there was this one guy. He had it like a hairy chest and everything. And a wig on. Oh, it's going to be from the back. You'll never see it. And I said, I can't have. <laughs> I can't have. It's like he's got this, like a guy's square shape, you know? In one scene, Wonder Woman was supposed to hang on to a helicopter, but the shot would have clearly revealed the stunt double. Linda Carter decided to do the stunt herself. I said, okay, okay, just roll it. Just roll it. And I got up on the thing and I, I got on the struts, but I didn't use the little safety thing. I didn't know you're supposed to. Um, and and I just take it up, just take this, just go, 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 before the sun, sun's going down, sun's going down. You know, go, 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 go. So they went, and the helicopter went up. Puts me back down. I say, good, we got the shot. One slip would have been deadly. Studio executives, infuriated that their star might have been injured, made sure Linda Carter got a stunt double, a female stunt double. That is such a funny story, and it shows how far we've come. Carter had to contend with not having a female stunt double, but she forged a path that was followed by Charlie's Angels, The Bionic Woman, Ridley, Sarah Connor, Buffy, Janeway, Xena, and so on. We've progressed so far that today, we take it for granted that our actors have stunt doubles, which was one of the reasons that The Matrix and its imitators were such a revelation in training the actors to do much of their own stunt work, a philosophy that carried over to Man of Steel and having Russell Crowe do his own underwater sequence and Henry Cavill doing all of his own stunts. In an interview with Virginia Tech News, Henry Cavill stunt double Paul Darnell said, Henry did all of his own stunts in the film. I would rehearse and set up the stunts and Henry would come in and knock them out on film. That seems consistent with the clip that we played back in episode 12 where Cavill talks about the deleted oil rig scene that had him coated in fire gel. 
Darnell also says, Henry Cavill is also a truly amazing person, a man's man. Henry is pretty much a stuntman in the fact that he is super down to earth, very strong, and extremely athletic. Working with Henry is just like hanging out with one of the guys. It's awesome to know that our Superman left such a positive impression on his co-worker. And as long as we're giving stunt people love, I'd like to quickly mention that Samantha Joe, or Carvex, the Kryptonian that tangled with Lois on the Black Zero, is primarily known as a stunt performer, but she also played Katana in Mortal Kombat Legacy. But we were talking about Wonder Woman. So today, it's the norm for actors to rely on doubles, but Man of Steel allowed its lead to do his own stunts, and it appears that Godot is going to fit right in with that. Here's Godot in a Huffington Post live interview promoting the Fast and the Furious 6. One of the other things about um, Fast 6 is that unlike the other films, you actually got to do your own stunts. I know. One, right? I was very lucky. Um, actually, when we, when we finished shooting uh, Fast 5, uh, I told Justin that if he wants me in Fast 6, I want to be able to do my own stunts and I want to have more action stuff. And he, he looked at me and he was like, really? Okay. Uh, and then I got the script and it was amazing and crazy. And I got very excited to be able to do everything by, by myself. And that's the fun part about being an action actress, that you can do this crazy stuff that you, will, you would never be able to do in, your, in the real life. Um, and I enjoyed it very much. What's the craziest stunt that you've ever done? So was there something that Jumping really scared you? Jumping from the motorcycle uh, to the Jeep. But there's a scene where I drive the motorcycle and then I jump on a driving Jeep. Uh, that one was a kind of a, a edgy uh, stunt, which I liked so much, but it was kind of scary. But the thing was, we got to in this movie. You 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 get to work with the most uh, professional people, and the stunt coordinator I worked with made me feel so confident and so secure uh, that I felt really ready when I when I went to set. She's going to be in good company with Momoa, who said that he did most of his own stunts for Conan in an interview with Inked magazine, and Affleck, who did some of his own stunt work in Daredevil, of course, with the assistance of doubles, each with their own specialty like wire work or fighting. It's not a necessity that they do any of their own stunts, but it adds a touch of authenticity to the scenes where a double isn't needed, digital or otherwise, and oftentimes just preparing to tackle that stunt as if you were going to do it yourself can help put the actor in the mindset to embody the character. <laughs> How did we get here? There is so much more ground to cover, but I love it. I hope that all the future DCCU films are well received, but it seems like I will have a ton to comment on to answer and explain as the universe gets bigger and bigger. There is so much more on Wonder Woman and Godot, but we'll have to come back to this some other time. <laughs> A lot of the stuff that I had prepared was preempted by the Aquaman reveal. But one last Wonder Woman thing. I rewatched several documentaries about or relating to Wonder Woman in preparation for this segment, and there's just something amusing to me because it's parts of the same story told from two different perspectives by the parties involved in two different documentaries. First, we have Gloria Steinem in the 2012 PBS independent lens film Wonder Woman, The Untold Story of American Superheroines. The first regular cover of Ms. Magazine, we wanted to have something that was um, big and said that you can't have democracy without feminism. So we thought, what bigger image than a superhero? 
The idea of Wonder Woman striding through the world as a colossus, stopping war with one hand, distributing food with the other hand, what could be better than that? Then we discovered that she had fallen on very hard times. She gave up her Amazonian powers, opened up a clothing boutique, and she gets this mentor named I Ching, who is this blind martial arts expert. And she goes on these crazy spy-fi type adventures, doesn't have any superpowers, seems to cry a lot. She has some temper tantrums. And it's all very, very fun, but it's not Wonder Woman. We had to persuade, and not to say lobby, and <laughs> and practically march in the street to get her, her magical powers back. But also, we, we wanted all women to be represented. And I remember the person in charge of Wonder Woman calling me up uh, from DC Comics. He, he was so annoyed, and he said, okay, we have, she has her magical powers back, her lasso, her bracelet, she has Paradise Island back, and she has a black uh, African uh, Amazon sister named Nubia. Now will you leave me alone? <laughs> then we hear Denny O'Neill's perspective in the 2013 PBS Superheroes, Great Power, Great Responsibility. Though DC Comics superhero stories were earnestly grappling with topical issues, the all-male writing staff was ill-prepared to handle the rise of a popular new movement in the 1970s. I was a blue-collar, lower-middle-class Irish kid from North St. Louis, and I believed in pacifism, in racial equality, and along came feminism, and I thought I ought to believe in this. But emotionally, I was five years away from accepting and understanding feminism. <laughs> so there you have that. Um, so Aquaman and Wonder Woman have many obvious parallels. They're both royalty and come from magical fantasy kingdoms that have been hidden from the eyes of men and are found in ancient Greek myth. Both have ties to Greek gods like Poseidon and Hera, and their underlying themes being fantasy, they are the two Justice League members most experienced with and prone to slaying dragons and monsters, and thus somewhat quicker to use force as they deem necessary. As a quick aside, Superman's battle with Zod in Man of Steel perhaps gives him the authority of experience to speak and be heard by an Amazonian warrior and an undersea king. They could respect his aversion to killing as justifiable rather than just naive. If Snyder had insisted on a Superman that never kills purely on principle, could a realistic Superman ever cooperate with or see eye to eye with more pragmatic warriors who routinely kill? It's an open question and we'll obviously revisit it, but back to Aquaman and Wonder Woman. The parallels did make them a suggested pair in Morrison's JLA run, and when Mark Wade picked up the run and had the League face off against the Queen of Fables, Wonder Woman, a princess, was put into a deep, enchanted sleep and awakened only by Aquaman's kiss, a king who was once a prince. They were also paired into a Greek tragedy of a political marriage in Flashpoint, the transitional alternate DC dystopia between the post-crisis continuity and the New 52. This has led some to speculate that the two might be romantically paired in Justice League. I think it's too early to tell, especially since we don't know what supporting characters are going to be in their solo films. For some, it's an intriguing possibility, but I'm sure that everyone knows that being teammates or co-workers doesn't necessarily make romance inevitable. But we'll see. 
<laughs> Aside from a potential ship, they also share magical accessories in common. Wonder Woman is probably better known for her magical tools, and the most iconic amongst them are the Lasso of Truth, or the Lariat of Hestia, and her indestructible bracelets forged by Hephaestus. Aquaman, meanwhile, wields the trident of Neptune, although the god is typically referred to as Poseidon within the comics. They both have had other, perhaps less widely known tools, like their swords and their armor. Wonder Woman's tiara, her invisible jet, and even her earrings have had purpose in the past. Aquaman's notorious hook hand, and then the magical water hand. And if you've listened to this show before, you know that I love breakdowns and lists, and I'm definitely excited to go through all the gear, origins, abilities, powers, and magic <laughs> eventually, but not this episode. But two last things about the trident. One, did you know that the three-pronged USB symbol is alleged to be inspired by Neptune's trident? And two, did you know that while filming Batman v Superman in Detroit, Zack Snyder called into a Detroit radio talk station to defend Aquaman? Here's a clip from that call back in August. Is this Zack Snyder? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm on my way to set right now, and I was listening to you guys on the radio, and I just, you guys were disparaging a little bit Aquaman. Just a we're questioning who, uh, why who, he's involved, yes. Who he could beat. Yeah. Well, I don't want to, like, give anything away about, you know, movie or anything like that, but I just, you know, Aquaman has some cool abilities, you know, that I think people are like, oh, what? Does he talk to animals? Because that seems like what he does, or fish or whatever. But I think, you know, the cool thing is, I mean, with Aquaman, you know, his trident, you know, people don't realize that, like, that can actually could cut the flesh of Superman if, you know, they came in contact. That's a thing that's in the canon. Mm -hmm. And he can, he's super strong because, of course, he can exist at these super deep depths. So when he comes up here, it's like he's crazy strong. But anyway, not to say he's in my movie or anything like that. <laughs> I'm just saying he's, he's uh, he has potential to be badass. That's all I'm saying. So a couple of quick notes about that clip. First, we know that Snyder has been thinking about these heroes and their interactions months in advance of any official announcement. Second, we know that Snyder wants all the heroes to be honored and was moved to call in and ensure that Aquaman wasn't being disrespected. Third, it shows that Snyder considers and uses Superman as his benchmark. The abilities of Aquaman's trident would be meaningless if Snyder and the public didn't hold Superman's durability in high esteem. Instead, it's significant that Aquaman's trident might be able to wound Superman because Superman is recognized as so durable. And that serves as a nice segue into something I promised I'd talk about back in Episode 7, the magic quote-unquote weakness. Magic. Indeed, you are my physical match. But I sense one critical difference, a vulnerability to magic. Basically, I want to lay out why Superman isn't allergic to magic and shouldn't be harmed by it more than others. So some ground rules on what we're talking about and how. First, we're not explicitly talking about the DCCU, particularly since we have yet to see if or how magic will be handled in the cinematic universe. Second, I'm not interested in playing semantics. For the purposes of this discussion, we're going to distinguish between a weakness and a vulnerability 
utility as different terms, even if they can be used nearly interchangeably in other contexts or perhaps in regular parlance. Here in this discussion, a vulnerability is merely something one is susceptible to, whereas a weakness is something one is especially susceptible to, more so than others. I may use the word allergy or allergic by way of analogy in place of weakness in this discussion. So using these terms of art, we can restate the hypothesis as Superman is vulnerable to magic, but he is not weak to magic. Third, I'm not arguing that this is how Superman has universally been handled by creators. I'm well aware of precedents and products to the contrary. For example, Scott Snyder's Batman issue number 20. Rather, this is an argument for why the not weak to magic viewpoint is perhaps more logically sound and consistent than proposing that Superman is especially weak to magic. This seems to be the appropriate way to resolve differing precedent by seeing which one is more reasonable. Fourth and finally, this is obviously a lark and merely a fan rant for fun. It's not a manifesto, an expectation, or a declaration of demand. Even if this is what I'd like to believe, it's not worth getting upset over, belittling others about it, or boycotting things over. At the end of the day, it's just comics. So let me start with my expert witness, Kurt Busiek, highly acclaimed superhero comic book writer, having won the Harvey Award for Best Writer in 1998 and the Eisner Award for Best Writer in 1991, along with several other Harvey, Eisner, and other awards for his writing throughout the years. He's probably best known for Marvels with Alex Ross and for Astro City. But in Superman circles, he's known for writing the must-read Superman Secret Identity, published in 2004, and for his runs on Action Comics and Superman between 2005 and 2011. Busick also wrote The Avengers from 1998 to 2004, concluding with his historic JLA Avengers cross-publisher crossover, where Superman prevails over Thor and his magical hammer, Molnir. In a CBR forum post, here's what Busick had to say on Superman and magic. Superman is not allergic to magic. It doesn't affect him like kryptonite. He's simply vulnerable to it the way everyone else is. So a turn into a bunny spell would turn Superman into a bunny. It would also turn Hulk or Gladiator into a bunny. The reason Superman is described as vulnerable to magic is not because he's more vulnerable to it than anyone else, but because he is invulnerable to just about everything else parenthetically, or he was pre-crisis, when magic, red sun rays, and kryptonite were about it. Magic doesn't affect him differently from the way it affects other people. It affects him the same way it does other people. He has no immunity to it, and neither do the Hulk and Gladiator. And no, Thor's hammer doesn't make him stronger. There are no spells on it that make it hit hard. There are a bunch of magic spells on it, but they've been enumerated, and none of them make it hit harder. The spells would work on Superman to the extent that they work on anyone, but they do what the spells are enchanted to do. They wouldn't do more to Superman than they would do to the Hulk or Gladiator, because those two characters are no less vulnerable to magic than Superman. And so ends his post. So aside from Busek's accolades and accreditations, he's the man who's written Thor for six years as an Avenger and thus not inclined to an anti-Thor basis in his analysis. Of course, all I've really done is restate the same position by a respected and decorated writer. Obviously, the other position is out there, but why isn't it as consistent or as well-reasoned? 
I mean, either position is the writer's prerogative, and either one can be done by fiat. But why is magic as a mere vulnerability more logically sound than magic as a weakness? Well, the problem with magic as a weakness is that it requires that either Superman's powers or that all of magic has a special sensitivity to the other. Either that Superman's powers recognize magic or that magic recognizes Superman. On its face, that might seem okay as a way of giving Superman a weakness, but it falls apart on examination. And let me give you an example. Suppose we were to strike Superman with Harry Potter's broom. Intuitively, we know that it is enchanted for flight with no special striking or offensive characteristics. Under the allergy theory, striking Superman with Harry Potter's broom would not only hurt him as much as a normal person, but more than a normal person would be harmed if struck by any broom, simply because the broom itself is magical. This creates a serious quandary. How does Superman's non-mystical, scientifically-based powers know that the broom is magical? How does his powers know either to stand down and step out of the way, ceasing to protect Superman, or to affirmatively harm him more than another person would be. Now, it should be obvious that they don't and that they can't. That would imbue Superman's powers with sentience and magic detection, tying his science-based powers to the irrational force of magic. Obviously, that is a ridiculous burden to place on his powers. But then what's the alternative? The alternative is that all magic is unified, fundamentally scientific, and interacts with Kryptonian powers in a uniform way, no matter how irrelevant the underlying magic is to the harm. Or that every spell cast has a rider attached to it and in the fine print saying, and this will weaken and hurt Superman. So when enchanting Harry's broom, under their breath they mutter, and this will hurt Superman. Or that all magic throughout the multiverse has a consistent scientific interaction with Kryptonian powers. Now, of course, that's absurd for a number of reasons. First, there are countless examples of Superman being subjected to allied or beneficial spells, being healed, teleported, shielded, etc. Superman seems perfectly fine kissing the magically imbued Wonder Woman, visiting Shazam at the Rock of Eternity or shaking his hand, or going to Dr. Fate at his tower, and so on. So unless this hidden fine print now also includes an exemption for intentionally beneficial spells, this doesn't seem to be the answer either. Second, magic itself does not have a consistent or uniform basis. I'm going to resist the impulse to quote Arthur C. Clarke and just say that I'm not entirely sure that there is a consistent definition for what is or constitutes magic. When we start to transcend dimensions and enter the cosmic and the far-flung future and parallel planes, the line between a fifth dimensional imp and a magical genie of the lamp are perhaps blurred. Perhaps there's a unifying principle across it all, but I find that very unlikely. Some magic is chaotic and unruly, while other magic may as well be science given how orderly, systematic, and rule-based it can be. And in some cases, like Flash's rogue from the 64th century, Abracadabra, magic is science. Honestly, the only thing binding it all together is probably the fourth wall and the writer's pen, which still follows a bare minimum of rules bound by storytelling logic. Even the most chaotic and arbitrary of magic will not allow for story-breaking results. Even the most omnipotent in-story magic is but the illusion that anything can happen and not that literally anything can. 
So given all these disparate forms of magic unlikely to share a common source or set of rules, it seems profoundly unlikely and unreasonable that the one rule that all magic should share is that they are harmful to Kryptonians in particular. Busick's version is much more elegant. Superman follows science, well, as much as he traditionally does, and magic follows magic. Superman is only affected by magic to the extent that anything else would be affected by the same rule of magic. Hitting Superman with a broom enchanted only to fly has no effect beyond swinging any other broom at Superman, since the enchantment has no relevance to hitting. However, a Vorpal sword enchanted to cut anything would cut Superman, because he is anything. Of course, because the nature of enchantment and magic is not typically that explicit, it tends to create a gray area of ambiguity and interpretation. For example, why does Shazam's lightning hurt Superman more than normal lightning, which on its best day may only tickle the Man of Steel? Well, we don't know explicitly what the direct magical effect of Shazam's lightning is on targets other than himself. And while that ambiguity makes it easy to assume that the harm is simply because of its magical nature, I would suggest that we hold off on jumping to that conclusion since the lightning itself does not conform strictly to the laws of physics to begin with. Shazam's lightning bolt is not just literal lightning. It can appear in a cloudless sky, and in some books it can be summoned indoors. It typically travels to its summoner irrespective of whether there is a more likely path that natural lightning would follow. And of course, it does something very different in striking its intended target than a natural lightning bolt would do. So for all we know, mechanically, the magic may harm Superman because part of the spell is to create lightning where none should be, even if that is beyond or past Superman's force field or some other similar rationalization. Given the inconsistencies and the ambiguity for these kind of things, we may have to just go for heuristics and precedents rather than hard and fast rules. And while there are precedents that fall all over the place, I know that you know that Superman has fought many a magical entity, survived many magical attacks, and taken on the magical powered as more than a mere mortal man on many occasions. Even if, for example, Shazam's lightning hurts Superman, it seems to hurt him far less than a regular Joe getting hit by lightning. And in fact, the showdown between ambiguous magic and Kryptonian powers was even the linchpin to a feature film, 1984's Supergirl, starring Helen Slater and Faye Dunaway. If you remember the movie, Supergirl faced off against a sorceress powered by a Kryptonian orb, the Omegahedron. The orb makes the magic ambiguous, but nonetheless, if taken as magic, Kara survives a number of attacks that would have killed a normal human being outright, including being pulled and twisted by a giant horned creature. So even on film, magic isn't necessarily an instantaneous defeat for Kryptonians. If you don't remember Supergirl 1984, I suggest you reminisce with Rebecca and Teresa over at SupergirlRadio.com. They have an awesome fan podcast devoted to the upcoming CBS Supergirl TV show and are in the midst of a pre-show season spanning the Supergirl mythos and media. In episode two, they talk about the film 
and soon they'll be covering Kara in the Man of Steel prequel comic. So Man of Steel fans need to check that one out. They are a great part of a solid network of DC TV podcasts that are definitely worth a listen. So be sure to support them, check them out, and tell them Doc Ock sent you. Eventually, we'll have more data points to discuss with the DCCU, and then we'll start to see how Kryptonians and magic will interact. But with all this talk about weaknesses and vulnerabilities, I wanted to mention at least one way in which Superman might benefit from the introduction of magical kingdoms in the DCCU. In episode 9, I did a lot of apologetics for how Clark's secret identity might have survived Man of Steel, but I was still stumped on how they could believably maintain it in a strictly realistic world going forwards. You might remember that I put conditions on the analysis like no new powers, like the amnesia kiss, and a realistic world. But magic contravenes that underlying assumption, doesn't it? Going forwards, the DCCU seems like Atlantis and Themyscira were always in our world, but undetectable for some reason or another. It's possible that those reasons are technological, but I'm inclined to imagine that they will be magical. So at least two kingdoms with the magic to maintain a secret hidden from the entire world despite modern technology. Something in that may be applicable to Superman maintaining his secret identity. And depending on its execution, it wouldn't be world-breaking. At least no more than the introductions of Atlanteans or Amazons is intrinsically world-breaking. It might not be completely traditional, but if the League unites as allies, it seems completely rational to help your teammates protect their loved ones by keeping their cover identities using any reasonable means possible, whether that means dipping into Batman's billions or calling on the Atlantean Magi. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm doing my best with the time and the responsibilities that I have, but it's a pleasure to put these together for you, and I appreciate you listening. I'm going to have to cut it off here, so the mailbag questions that I have are going to have to wait, as well as all those bits of news from Christina Wren's comments to Viola Davis to Hans Zimmer talking about themes and Margot Robbie talking about contracts. It is an awesome time to be a DCCU fan. If you haven't already subscribed to the YouTube channel, there are new videos tackling more Man of Steel myths for you to like and to share. Okay, I think I've rambled on long enough. Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network. Here are some other shows I recommend you check out if you want to extend your enjoyment of the Superman mythos. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring Superman and Batman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, the DC Comics Presents Show, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, it's Superman, the Schuster Herald Podcast, the Kara's World Podcast, Superman Forever Radio, Superman Lives, Up, Up and Away, Cadmus to Crisis, a Superboy Podcast. The Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen's podcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer. 
Russell Brad, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Sapp, Bob Fisher, Chris Moe, Mario Benessi, Drew Wintermeyer, David Byer, Matthew Epps, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co-host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Thanks so much for listening. I just love discussing this stuff. And if you've been sticking with me, hopefully you do too. I'm genuinely grateful for each and every listener and hope you'll join us at manofsteelanswers.com. That way, if you've got a question you want answered or an insight that you want to share or commentary to make, you can post in the comments for all your like-minded apologists to see. Or you can email me at mosaic at manofsteelanswers.com. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. It'll help others find the podcast so they can enjoy Man of Steel and the DCCU as much as you do. This is Dr. Awkward, your DC Cinematic Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. You're the answer, son. Superman has a cute butt. (laughs) No, I really like the curl in the middle of the forehead.